Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological. I'm your host, Associate Professor Alvin Chong, Specialist Dermatologist and Director of Education at the Skin Health Institute. This episode was made possible with the support of the Australasian College of Dermatologists, as well as the Skin Health Institute. We have made it to the last episode of Season 1, and we are very proud to present something very special today. On the 6th of September 2020, I interviewed two eminent dermatologists from the U.S. about their experiences dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Kanade Shinkai is Professor of Clinical Dermatology at the UCSF Department of Dermatology and Chief Editor of JAMA Dermatology. Dr. Esther Freeman is both an epidemiologist and dermatologist at Massachusetts General Hospital at Harvard. She's a member of the COVID-19 Task Force of the American Academy of Dermatology and director of the International COVID-19 Dermatology Registry. She has also published seminal papers on skin manifestations of COVID-19. Our guests shared their extraordinary experiences dealing with COVID-19 as the pandemic hit. We learned about the cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19, including COVID toes, And we discussed how dermatological patients on biologic medications and immunosuppression were managed. Our guests then shared their insights and experiences dealing with the many challenges of COVID-19. This podcast was recorded on Zoom in the middle of the stage four lockdown in Melbourne. There are a number of papers which our speakers will refer to during the podcast. And we have placed links to some of these papers for your reference on the Dispatches from America podcast page on spotdiagnosis.org.au. I hope you find this podcast to be informative and inspiring like I did. So welcome to COVID-19 and Skin, Dispatches from America. If you're in Australia, good morning. And if you're joining us from the US, good evening. This presentation has been made possible by the Skin Health Institute Victoria and the Australasian College of Dermatologists. I'd like to start in the traditional way by acknowledging the owners of the lands on which we are meeting today and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I'm meeting with you today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respect to their elders. My name is Alvin Chong. I'm a specialist dermatologist, director of education at Skin Health Institute and adjunct associate professor at University of Melbourne. With me is Dr. Aaron Robinson, dermatologist at Skin Health Institute and honorary senior lecturer at University of Melbourne. He's going to be my co-host and moderator. In the last six months, our world has been turned upside down by the coronavirus pandemic. And at last count, there have been 26 million confirmed cases and nearly a million people dead. The US has had 6.2 million cases and 190,000 deaths. The numbers continue to grow in many countries. Um, Last week in India, there were 83,000 cases uh, diagnosed in 24 hours. And yesterday, Amnesty International reported that a staggering 7,000 healthcare workers have lost their lives to COVID-19. In other countries, we're seeing second waves. New Zealand, who were famously free of disease for 111 days, are now in partial lockdown again. Australia has been spared the high numbers. We've had 26,000 cases and 700 deaths, 
but I'm speaking from Melbourne, Jeremy Melbourne, the epicenter of the Australian second wave. We have been in stage four lockdown for about four weeks now. Economies all over the world are struggling. Psychologically, people are battered, and it has been very challenging to say the least. The COVID-19 virus is deadly. It is insidious, and it is going to be with us for a very long time. How do we continue to provide a clinical service in the grips of a pandemic? What are the cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19? How common are these cutaneous manifestations? And what does it mean when a patient presents with perniosis in this time? What about our patients who are immunosuppressed uh, on biologics? What do we do with them? These are complex and difficult questions. And to help us answer these, we are very fortunate to have with us two eminent dermatologists from the US. Firstly, Professor Kanade Shinkai. Professor Shinkai is the professor of clinical dermatology and faculty member of the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF Department of Dermatology. Kanade specializes in medical dermatology. She is passionate about medical education and now serves as a vice chair for education for that department. She's also the current editor-in-chief of JAMA Dermatology. Welcome, Professor Kanade Shinkai. Thank you so much for having me. Our next guest is Dr. Esther Freeman. Esther is one of the rising stars of dermatology. She's trained as an epidemiologist with a PhD from London School of Tropical Medicine, as well as being a dermatologist. Currently, she's the director of global health dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, the chair of the clinical guidelines committee at the American Academy of Dermatology, a member of the AAD COVID-19 task force. She directs the COVID-19 Dermatology Registry, which is an international effort with over a thousand cases from 40 countries. And she has published seminal papers on the cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Esther Freeman. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And this is where I want to just pause our proceedings momentarily for a moment. We want to remember the lives lost to COVID-19 worldwide and reflect particularly on the 7,000 healthcare workers, many doctors and nurses who have lost their lives in the line of duty caring for the sick. Each one of them would have been someone's son or daughter, someone's parent, brother or sister, husband or wife, friend and colleague. Let us now pause for a moment to remember these people who have died helping others and pay our respects. We will not forget them. Thank you for this, ladies and gentlemen. There are going to be four themes in our meeting. The first is life during COVID-19. What is it like being a clinician? The second theme is cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19. The third theme is management of immunosuppression during the pandemic. And the fourth theme is challenges and lessons learned. So we'll start with life during COVID-19 or what we call COVID normal. So I'd like to ask our guests, can you tell us what was your life like as academic dermatologist and how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected your work as clinicians? Maybe Kanadi can start us off. Thank you. Well, here in California, we've had uh, certainly not the hardest hit place within the United States, but we have had 
about three quarters of a, of a million cases uh, and 13,000 deaths since early uh, February, which was when the first case of COVID was documented here in, San, in, in the San Francisco area, though we didn't know it until much later. Um, it, was, it was initially believed to kind of enter the San Francisco area in early March. Our city went into shutdown, shelter in place, uh, March 13th, which were very stringent. Everything closed down. Um, you weren't allowed to leave your home uh, unless you were an essential worker or had to go to the grocery store, hospital, or bank, although most banks were closed. And um, and uh, it was a really terrifying time. Uh, I had the unique distinction of being on hospital consult call from mid-March until mid-April and um, really saw a number of cases of COVID during a time when we really didn't know how we should be conducting ourselves um, safely to see these patients and also what, what to even be looking for. So getting consults on patients with viral symptoms and a rash. This was a time when there was very little testing available Testing would take three to five days to return a result. And there was a, a lot of different protocols that seemed to change daily. Initially, there was actually a, a few weeks period of time where we were specifically told not to wear masks uh, in the hospital or clinic setting. We were told not to wear masks. We didn't have enough. Uh, and indeed, there were very few masks um, available. And so um, this was a, a really interesting and challenging time to be a dermatologist. I think I had a lot of existential questions at the time. Um, I felt it was very important for us to be uh, have a presence um, both clinically in the outpatient setting as well as the inpatient setting. Uh, certainly not for um, uh, non-emergency situations, but for emergency situations, we certainly wanted to be there. It became immediately evident to us that many of the patients who were infected with SARS-CoV-2 had skin manifestations, and we didn't understand what those were or what those meant in terms of whether that portended a different level of uh, prognosis or, or diagnosis or severity of their disease. And, um, and we were also trying to manage our outpatient, our otherwise very busy outpatient setting now through new protocols and telehealth which was an adventure. And um, in person, we, we were not certain what types of um, protective gear to wear, um, and there was very limited amounts. Um, and so uh, it was not uh, unusual to have a set of protective wear, protective gear that you would don and then doff into a paper bag and then carry your paper bag to the next bedside and don it again. Um, and so uh, this was um, really an interesting time to think about how I, as a dermatologist, could could really contribute to the house of medicine and to our patients. Wow, that's uh, that's incredibly challenging. You know, the lack of PPE did that did that concern you? I mean, obviously, it it would have. I mean, the idea of seeing patients without any protective gear is right now, you know, kind of insane. But when it was happening around you, did you just do it? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think we as dermatologists are frequently exposed to many things that, that we would don PPE for. For example, a patient with disseminated varicella or, uh, you know, maybe a patient with tuberculosis, certain skin infections, we have, you know, a, a level of protective gear that we wear and different protocols. So this felt very strange to not know what 
evidence was available in terms of, of how to, um, uh, which PPE to use, you know, whether a, a standard traditional surgical mask was sufficient, whether you needed an N95. Um, around this time, the KN95s, you know, entered the market from Asia and were much more widely available, but the question was, were these sufficient? And then other forms of, of headgear, whether that was a face shield, you know, kind of like a, like a welder's mask, face shield, uh, whether we needed to wear eye protection, whether we needed to wear um, like gowns over our, our regular um, scrubs or clothes, we just didn't have answers. And so this was, and I think it was sort of unfolding during the time with many different competing positions and interests in terms of, you know, were we recommending that people not use PPE because we just didn't have enough um, to really sustain the entire healthcare system? You know, everyone from, uh, you know, every, every um, uh, aspect of, of hospital operation, right, would need to wear some level of PPE. And then those who were in direct contact with patients um, would need maybe potentially a different level of PPE. And then was the question was, how do we prevent people from getting infected by reusing PPE? And do we damage our PPE when we try to decontaminate it? So there's a number of studies looking at whether we could use ultraviolet light or different sterilizing protocols to um, disinfect PPE. And then with that actually compromise the integrity um, or would it even compromise the integrity use the same N95 for uh, repeated uh, occurrences. So these were all questions where there was, where there was minimal evidence and uh, it was, it was, it was really challenging to operate in the unknown. Did any of your dermatology colleagues or trainees become infected with COVID? Unfortunately, we did have um, people who were infected, although I think analyzing those cases, most of them were were actually infected through the community, through community contacts, and so um, and not through patient care, through through the contact tracing that we were able to do. And so we feel fortunate for that. But certainly um, around the U.S., I have heard many um, stories of, of trainees and, and faculty members being infected, uh, largely through their hospital or clinic contacts. Okay. I agree. I think it felt very similar, like Wild West when we started, just in terms of we faced a lot of the same PPE issues as Kanade did. I remember literally laughing out loud when the CDC guidance, we had so few masks that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control issued a guidance that it was acceptable for healthcare workers to wear bandanas. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, we are in really big trouble. (laughs) <laughs> if the US CDC is saying it's acceptable to wear bandanas for something that we know you should probably be wearing an N95 for, like we're really in trouble. Yeah, I think that's the challenge of a PPE shortage has been huge in the US. And I would love to say that here we are like six months later in Boston, where, and I'll show you our numbers, we had a huge wave. We were a big epicenter for COVID-19. Uh, we are actually still reusing PPE even six months later, which I think is a, a real uh, statement on the situation of U.S. healthcare right now is that we really, I think, should not be in a place where we're still having to, you know, re-sterilize and reuse PPE, but we are. So right now, I don't wear an N95. We wear surgical masks in clinic. Um, We have very strict policies at Massachusetts General Hospital that unless you were doing a truly aerosol-generating procedure, you were actually not allowed to wear an N95. I think some of this may relate to shortage, but... um, there's been a lot of debate, but we are actually all wearing just surgical masks in clinic. Um, I think there's been some debate, for example, around our Mohs surgeons who are doing Mohs surgery around the lip, for example, when the patient cannot have a mask on. 
there's certainly a lot of challenges in there. Um, the services that do wear N95s, for example, are those that where they're going into like a room where a patient is intubated or they're doing an aerosol generating procedure. So we have very strict policies about who can wear an N95 versus a surgical mask. The challenge was there was just no data and you were felt like you were just going into the complete unknown and you didn't know at what level of protection you know you needed to be wearing. And even if you knew, it probably wasn't available. So it was, I literally had neighbors dropping off hazmat suits at my door because they knew I was going in and that we had nothing. And so I didn't end up using them, but it was very sweet. One of my neighbors is a construction worker and he like dropped off a hazmat suit, which is still in my front hall. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with it. But uh, I think just the sense that we didn't, you know, we didn't really know it was coming. I wanted to share with you guys uh, just a picture of what our hospital, a little bit of the curve of what our hospital looked like in Boston to give you a sense of, of what we were experiencing. So, um, so I just wanted to share with you a little bit of our experience at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. So to give you a sense, I'm not even showing you state data. I am literally showing you just my hospital. So Massachusetts General Hospital is one of the primary teaching hospitals of Harvard Medical School. We're one of seven Harvard teaching hospitals. So to give you a sense, we are one of many, many hospitals in Boston. And so this is just my hospital. So just in my hospital, we had um, about 350 inpatients with COVID-19 during our peak. Um, our peak was right around uh, mid-April, but it started in early March. Um, and just to give you a sense, in Massachusetts, we had 120,000 um, cases so far. I wanted to show you a little bit about what it was like for me during this trajectory. So we went on lockdown around the same time as Kanade went on lockdown, March 13th. We had, our clinic was closed at that time. We had what we called dock of the day. So we remained open for emergencies for we, our inpatient consult service, much like Kanade was still going in, but our outpatient service was limited to one doctor rotating through. And to give you a sense of our size, we're a pretty big academic department. I think we have about 35 dermatologists. So we were ended up having one dermatologist staffing, you know, urgent situations in the clinic. On March 27th, our department was redeployed. And this happened in a lot of hospitals that were experiencing major waves. And so at Mass General, they had a whole plan for redeployment. Um, and so we, we were initially redeployed as department to COVID testing. So we were going to be, and we partially did um, actually go into one of the ambulance garages and were COVID testers. Um, and then they re redeployed us from our redeployment <laughs> um, to the respiratory clinic, which was when we had suspected COVID cases and it was kind of frontline determining whether those cases needed to be inpatient or outpatient. Um, in the respiratory clinic. Uh, I think that was very challenging. I actually did not, I was covering doc of the day. So I actually did not end up um, in the respiratory clinic myself. Um, for the, my colleagues that did, I think it was a very challenging time. I remember distinctly one of them saying, you know, the other folks there were, were inpatient medicine trained. Um, and they said, oh, don't worry if you don't want to wait for the radiologist, you can just read the chest x-ray yourself. <laughs> <laughs> my colleagues being like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no way I'm reading the chest x-ray by myself. So I'm definitely waiting for the radiologist. So there's just this sense of like, wow, this is not in our normal scope of practice. Um, in the meantime, while we were getting redeployed from our redeployment, um, we were opening Telederm. And at this point, we didn't really 
know how that was going to work. We didn't, our practice was not a teledermatology practice. So we really had to do that from scratch. So we opened full-time for teledermatology with actually full clinical schedules, um, March 30th, which was pretty fast. It was about two weeks later. Um, And you can see we had a a pretty massive peak. So again, this was just our hospital. And to give you a sense of our peak size, normally Mass General has a peak capacity in the ICU of a hundred ICU beds. So we're a pretty big hospital. And I think at our peak, um, these are overall inpatient numbers I'm showing you, but our peak, I think we had about 150 to 200 people on vents um, in our hospital. So it was really just a challenging time. Um, And then we did actually end up opening uh, in-person for clinic in June 1. And now that I look at the whole curve, I felt very comfortable going into clinic on June 1st, but now that I look at the curve, I realized we weren't really at the bottom of our curve when I went back to clinic. Um, And then now here's a picture. Um, I actually don't wear a gown in clinic anymore. This was actually when I first went back to clinic. I now just wear scrubs and the surgical hat is not necessary. Um, I just wear it because it's more comfortable for me, Um, but we do wear a surgical mask and a shield, a face shield or goggles. Um, I happen with my glasses to prefer the face shield. And I'm currently at 85% volume. So what we've done in our clinic is we don't allow for any double booking anymore. And um, we don't allow anyone to like hang out in the waiting room and there's no visitors. So we really try to be a little bit more efficient, which is why um, we're functioning around 85 to 90% volume instead of 100%. And just to give you a sense um, at Mass General, this is the comparing the number of basically patients that were seen for other conditions in the emergency department. So um, the yellow is patients that were seen for other conditions, and the blue is for those who were seen in the emergency department for COVID. So you can see a massive drop as we went into lockdown of other people coming in, COVID going up, and then now you can see we're kind of back up to almost normal in terms of our emergency department visits. And then this is also looking at, um, just again, just my hospital, looking at our deaths. We've had 194 COVID deaths um, just in our hospital, but those have stayed pretty stable over that time. So that was, I'm just going to hit, uh, I'm going to stop sharing. Oh, one second. There you go. Okay. And did, did any um, dermatologists, and I mean, it sounds like you went from dermatology to the most high risk of all high risk things, you know? So did any of your colleagues get sick and, you know, your, your trainees? Uh, we actually did not have any COVID cases in our faculty or our trainees. And we did have some incredible residents who volunteered to go be the COVID frontline. Um, so we were not having residents. Our faculty was what, who was getting redeployed officially, um, but we actually had resident volunteers who went in and became Uh, They basically almost went back to being interns. So a number of these were actually our our first year dermatology residents. So what that means is they had done one year of internal medicine training, and then they had just started on three years of dermatology. So they had just finished their one year of internal medicine training. And so they actually, maybe nine months before, um, so they actually basically stopped doing dermatology and went back in as like clinical registrars on COVID floors, specifically to take care of COVID patients. We had a number of Harvard dermatology residents do that, which was really incredible. That, that is incredible. So courageous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah really. And they think they nobody got sick, which is amazing. Yeah, but I think yeah. it's... A- the last thing I'll say about it is I just, I think it's a very personal epidemic for those of us in these hot zones. I myself lost uh, one cousin and I had two cousins that thankfully recovered, but it's definitely, I think everyone here in Boston knows someone who had it or, 
you know, did not make it. And so it's a very personal epidemic for us. Okay, well, thank you for sharing all that with us. We'll move on to our second theme now, which is the cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19. Over to you again, Esther. You are the Director of Global Health Dermatology and also the Director of the International um, Dermatology Registry of COVID-19. Can you take us through what, what you have learned and what you know about the uh, skin manifestations of COVID-19, please? Absolutely. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about the founding of the dermatology registry and then some of our preliminary findings. Um, And I'm happy to obviously answer any questions about it. Um, So I wanted to tell you a little bit about the founding of it in particular. We did write a paper um, discussing how we started this, um, which was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Um, So that's available. I'm looking at crowdsourcing dermatology in the age of COVID-19. I think it's important to think about what a registry can do and what it can't do, because there's a lot of things that it can't do. I think a couple of reasons when we started the registry, the idea being that there was so much going on in different parts of the world but there was no real central repository for where people were putting in information, especially regards to dermatologic manifestations around COVID-19. So ideas with a registry that we could really reach globally very quickly, um, and even little tiny observations that maybe weren't much of a noise in different places when you start bringing them together mean a lot more. Um, and it's great for hypothesis generation. So certainly around things like pernio or COVID toes, a lot of hypotheses were generated from our data. I think it's really important to understand limitations, which is that it's not the same as a cohort study um, or any other larger epidemiologic-based study. And to be honest, as a, as a PhD-trained epidemiologist, this was my biggest hang-up. I almost didn't start the registry because I was so worried that people would take it as a cohort study design, and it's not. And so what I mean by that is we don't have a denominator. So if people enter cases, I don't know, I cannot tell you from the registry you know, how many cases of COVID are going to develop cutaneous manifestations? Because I only know who, what the cases that people entered. I also similarly don't know, you know, of everyone who has X condition, uh, what percentage are going to test PCR positive, for example. I only have what people enter in the registry. So I think it's just important to know that we can't truly assess causation um, from the registry. And those are some really important limitations. Um, just to give you a sense of how this came to be, I remember sitting, uh, I was in lockdown, and I remember thinking to myself, boy, someone should really start a registry, and that should be someone who can program an international database, and it should be someone who has infectious disease training and epidemiology training and outbreak training. And I remember sitting there and being like, oh, that's me. <laughs> Uh, And this little moment where I was like, oh, shoot, I guess that's really me. Um, So I proposed the idea to the American Academy of Dermatology um, Task Force on COVID-19, and then quickly proposed it as well to the International League of Derm Societies. um, And they were very supportive as well, that we wanted this to be truly international. And so I think the speed at which this happened really shows the amount of international collaboration um, and people's willingness to like break through barriers and red tape, because in my experience, so I run a lot of international databases in global health. And in my experience, launching something like this usually takes us about six months um, because there's a fair amount of international collaboration. Um, and this between when I proposed it to the American Academy of Dermatology, going through ethical approval, um, going through all of the programming to having the first patient entered was nine days. 
So it was just a, a completely different speed than we normally function at. Um, and the idea being that it's it just really, I think, shows that the whole international community was interested in, um, in creating this and, and coming together in a way that's not normally possible. Um, so where are we now? We're at over a thousand cases from 40 different countries. Um, the cases started coming in really very quickly. And we're so appreciative of other registries around the world, like the Global Rheumatology Alliance that provided some insight onto their registry experience as well. Um, so what are we seeing? And we'll talk a little bit about some of our papers. Pernio, like lesions of the feet and hands, otherwise known as chilblains uh, or COVID toes, are the most commonly entered symptom, um, followed by morbilliform eruptions. Um, but we have many, many more. I think we might have as many as uh, 30 different conditions that people have entered into the registry. Perneal lanes, I put that first, <laughs> and then we'll talk about some of the other manifestations as well. Um, so I thought I would uh, talk a little bit about probably one of the more famous dermatologic manifestations of COVID-19, um, otherwise known as COVID toes. I prefer perneal. Um, and I'm not sure if in Australia, do you guys use perneal or do you use chillblains? Seems to be a bit of a... Uh, chillblains, perneal, interchangeable. Okay, fair enough. Um, so we published our, our first paper in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology back in May, um, looking at our first 318 patients. And then more recently, um, we've actually published on our first 716 cases. Um, I just wanted to show you some pictures. I think you've probably seen many of these pictures before. Um, so we get these purple, tender, erythematous lesions, um, sometimes itchy. Um, many of my patients have uh, been enough tender that they can't wear shoes for about a week. Um, other patients don't find it to be as painful. Um, I do think it's really important to see lesions in different skin colors. Um, and so Roxana um, Denishu just published in uh, Journal of American Academy of Dermatology case reports, a series of images um, in skin of color, which I think is really important to highlight. It's obviously not quite, um, it's a little bit more subtle um, in darker skin tones. So I just wanted to make sure you had seen that. Um, and the typical story I will get from a patient, and to be clear at Massachusetts General Hospital, I myself care for many of these patients um, because in our peak, I was getting as many as 20 cases of perneo a day. Uh, normally, I might get one case of perneo in three months. So it was a very, very different and wild ride. Um, at the time. Um, so the typical story would be someone who had gotten COVID-19, maybe lost their sense of smell, and about two to four weeks later would develop these lesions. And they would become very um, painful and tender, and they last a very long time. Um, so usually somewhere around four to eight weeks. Um, so they can persist a long, long time. I think the most telling paper on this topic um, was actually this really nice paper um, looking at SARS-CoV-2 in skin biopsies from um, seven children that was published in the British Journal of Dermatology. And I think this photograph, this um, electron microscopy image, so these are uh, toe biopsies. Um, and this electron microscopy image in the lower right is probably one of my single favorite images um, in dermatology right now. And that is an electron microscopy image of a coronavirus. You can see it's very characteristic circle. The little white arrow is pointing to it. Um, so that is actually a coronavirus sitting in someone's toe. And the point that's particularly relevant is this is sitting in someone's toe when they are PCR negative. 
So there was a lot of question of maybe this isn't related to SARS-CoV-2 because my patients are testing negative, but this isn't a patient testing negative and you're actually seeing the coronavirus sitting in their toe. So I think this is very uh, helpful evidence. I did review the guidelines that your uh, group, I think, had recently come out with um, regarding Pernio and COVID-19, which I thought was very interesting. I think one thing I wanted to just highlight as a discussion topic or as a thought-provoking question is around PCR testing and uh, Pernio. Um, so in the registry, if I look at our most recent numbers, we have about 530 cases of Pernio in the registry from uh, many different countries. Um, 15% of those who were tested by PCR were positive, PCR positive. Now, we don't know that all of them are necessarily uh, by nature of being PCR positive infectious, but if we take PCR positivity to probably a, be a relatively good marker of infectivity, if we don't PCR test patients when they come in with new onset pernio, um, you are going to miss some PCR positive patients. And so I think a question, a thought question I just have for you, and there's no right answer to this question. I just pose it as a, a thought question is, what is the cost in your setting of doing a PCR versus the societal cost of missing a case that might be actively viral shedding? There's not a right answer to that. It's a thought question because in some places you may not be able to access a PCR, but if you have a relatively inexpensive expensive or accessible PCR, you are gonna catch some cases that are still actively shedding virus. So I think that my perspective is a public health hat of how do we stop transmission. Um, and I would just uh, say as well, I think it depends a little on the clinical scenario. And I'll talk to you a little bit about test timing. But if you have a patient that comes in and they say, you know what, doc, my toes have been purple for a month. Maybe I lost my sense of smell two months ago. Maybe I didn't, but my toes have been purple for a month. And I've been around my whole family. Everyone's fine. I've had it for four weeks. And now I'm coming in because it won't go away. So that person to me, probably the, the relative utility of PCR testing them might be relatively low. They've had purple toes for a month. The likelihood that that person is PCR positive is probably pretty low. It's very different to me than if someone comes in and says, doc, my toes turned purple yesterday or my toes started swelling yesterday, and this really just started. That's a patient that I would be much more likely to PCR test um, because it's new onset. So I think the timing is really critical. And um, I wanted to kind of show you, and this is truly, this isn't even hot off the presses. This is, you guys are like the first people I'm showing this data ever. Uh, so it was just did, I think yesterday, um, in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. And I got special permission from Dirk Elston, who's the editor, to show you these graphs because no one has seen them yet. <laughs> so, uh, so here I go. This is not even hot off the presses. It's not even available online yet, but um, it'll probably be available uh, next week. Um, so this is a new paper for us um, titled... Um, timing of PCR and antibody testing in patients with COVID-19 associated dermatologic manifestations. Um, and so what you'll see is that um, for all of our skin manifestations, if you're PCR testing sooner, they're more likely to be PCR positive. 
those that are getting PCR negative tests, those tests are usually occurring later. So, and this is a biased group, right? Because maybe the patients who are getting tested sooner are sicker, right? So there might be other reasons that they're getting tested sooner, but in general, based if you take time zero as the date of your skin symptoms starting, the PCR positive tests are happening sooner. Now, if you look at perneo only, we see the same trend. Patients who are testing PCR positive, the green bars for perneo, are on average getting their tests on median eight days after their perneo starts. Those that are getting the negative tests median are 14 days after, the, um, after their perneo starts. Um, if we shift over to the far right graphs, these are a little different. Here, we're not looking at positivity and negativity anymore. Here, we're looking at PCR positivity and antibody positivity, because again, when you do the test really matters. So here, what we're seeing is that median antibody positivity is around 30 days for all skin manifestations. Um, and if you look at the subset, that's just perneo, the median antibody positivity is at 27 days. Um, the reason I bring this up is that a lot of people are antibody testing folks, you know, 15 days after um, they've had a skin manifestation, and that may be too soon. We don't really know, but I think it's just important to know that there, there are these kind of longer time lags. So I wanted to talk about some of the other, and this is actually briefer, um, some of the other dermatologic manifestations we've seen. Um, so this was our paper um, on our first 716 cases from 31 countries. And I will tell you now that we're at around a thousand cases. Um, it's about the, the, the ratios are about the same. So it hasn't changed dramatically now that we're at a thousand cases. Uh, we are now, for example, with Pernio up to, uh, 535, I believe. Um, but what we will see is if you look at the first column is those that are laboratory confirmed. And so obviously we're on, you know, more solid ground when we talk about those that have lab confirmation. And so here you'll see that, um, Pernio actually then comes in number two, um, after morbilliform as being the most common. Um, so we have morbilliform and then Pernio, um, and then urticaria, uh, macular erythema, and then we also have vesicular, retiform, purpura, and papulosquamous eruptions. I think one thing that's important to point out in the registry is that about 50% of our cases are entered by dermatologists, which also means that 50% of our cases are entered by non-dermatologists. We don't collect photos intrinsically with every case for ethical reasons. Um, I could not have you upload a photo that might be identifiable of someone's face. So we are not able to confirm every diagnosis that's put into the registry. We do rely on the entering clinician's best judgment. Um, but this is why other types of studies and cohort studies are really important in COVID-19 in terms of really classifying some of this morphology in more detail. So I think um, what I really wanted to highlight from this paper, so this is a, an image from this paper, and I, I really credit uh, Joanna Harp, who is an inpatient dermatologist working in New York, uh, during COVID-19, during the massive New York surge. Um, she was doing all of the inpatient COVID-19 dermatology in New York for one of their major hospitals at the time. And so um, she really got to see a lot of this firsthand. And so she actually helped us create this figure. She was one of our co-authors. So I, I credit a lot of this visualization to her. So you'll see that Pernio in general was, um, goes with a really mild, relatively mild form of COVID, where only 16% of our patients 
that experienced that symptom in the registry were hospitalized. I'd like you to contrast that on the other end of the spectrum with retiform purpura, which I do think is more of these kind of end stage where you get these thrombotic events. 100% of those patients were hospitalized and 82% of them had ARDS. So they were very, very sick. So certainly not all skin manifestations go with the same degree of severity of COVID-19. And I think this was really telling. I remember there was such a contrast between inpatient and outpatient dermatology. My colleagues who were running the inpatient service at Mass General were saying, what are you talking about with Pernio? We haven't seen any Pernio. You know, we're seeing all these inpatient cases and we're seeing no Pernio. And I was saying to them, I've literally only seen Pernio. Like the only thing I've seen in the last four weeks are 30 cases of pernio a day. And so it was really incredibly telling that on the inpatient side, there was just not very much of this. And probably because most of these folks were actually controlling the virus very well. So I do believe, and I think we will, time will tell us we, there's so much still left to learn, um, I think we're ultimately going to find out that these in some ways are people who are controlling the virus and who's it's somehow a hallmark of a a robust immune response that we don't quite understand yet. Um, So I I suspect that's what we're going to find out, but I don't think we know that yet. Um, And then I think that's where I will pause. Can I, can I ask Kanade, um, what, what, what do you, I mean, JAMA has actually published a number of series of cases as well who've had, um, uh, I think that the European studies basically um, of young people or children with pernio who all test negative, um, even though it is in the period of the pandemic. Um, and the conclusion from there was that not all perniosis is, is that concerning. Well, I, first, I want to commend Esther for, for her tremendous leadership in this area to really capture um, information about, about what we were seeing, um, what both dermatologists and non-dermatologists were seeing on the skin of patients who were infected uh, with SARS-CoV-2. And um, it's just tremendous work. And, um, you know, I think what's very challenging is really understanding um, exactly what Esther brought up, which is the timing uh, of testing. I think another component of the testing that is uh, incredibly problematic uh, is that for one of the first times ever, at least in the United States, we were allowed to actually develop our own uh, SARS-CoV-2 testing in our own hospital systems. So rather than having standardized, nationally standardized tests, um, pretty much every hospital had its own homegrown version in an effort to really disseminate um, the capacity to test uh, patients at all. And so this was also very um, a very unusual move um, by our government and, and governing bodies. And I think it begs the question of the sensitivity and specificity of the testing, number one. And then two, I think Esther brings up an excellent point about when we test patients um, relative to their usually respiratory symptoms, right, is what brings a patient towards uh, either a respiratory clinic or a screening tent or fever versus when their skin manifestations uh, present. So so this data is really very, very novel and important uh, to help us understand that. I think, you know, I too um, have had that experience of being on the inpatient side 
Um, having done a little bit of outpatient clinic as well, but really did not see COVID toe at all or or the perniosis in the hospital, not once. Um, And I had even had a patient um, who's quite famous here in San Francisco. He's a a sort of a local star, uh, a gentleman who was hospitalized at um, at our institution for 72 days. Um, and during this uh, 70, for a good portion of which he was intubated. And during this time, he had multiple different rashes. Um, so I kind of was just waiting uh, for his perniosis to develop, but he did not develop it, at least to my knowledge. But I did wonder whether he would go through this progression of, of um, different uh, skin manifestations and whether that tells us something about uh, sort of the natural history of, um, of the rashes relative to the, the course of infection. Um, I think an important thing for me when I think about um, infection is that some of these skin manifestations are not specific. We're certainly used, as dermatologists, we're certainly used to seeing cases of urticarial eruptions, morbilliform eruptions, or macular papular re- uh, reactions, seeing ananthems in the mouth um, that, that really are not particularly telltale for a, you know, a particular virus um, or, or other infection. And I think that was something that we certainly saw a lot of um, during the COVID-19 era. And I'll also just mention for what this is worth, um, I saw many adults with uh, exanthems, ananthems, um, and unusual papulovesicular eruptions uh, during the the sort of immediate um, peak of COVID-19 who were all COVID-19 negative um, that I could not ascribe a diagnosis to. I'm usually with a sort of a viral prodrome of fever, malaise, myalgia, uh, and these very viral looking eruptions, um, a kind of a grainy exanthem as opposed to sort of that more blotchy uh, drug related maculopapular eruption with no drug trigger. So it wasn't like we were, we could attribute it to, uh, to a medication. And that was a very unusual um, observation for what it's worth, an N of one, um, at least one dermatologist um, who saw uh, dozens of cases like that um, during that time. In terms of the um, the perniosis, I mean, certainly there's no question that I too might see three or four cases of perniosis in a year as a medical dermatologist, and and certainly there were significant rises in the numbers that that we have to explain. Um, and um, I I don't I don't deny that that has something to do with COVID nineteen. It's just the question is what, uh, who. And when um, I think are really the, the critical questions here, in terms of determining um, what that means, whether that means that patients have mild um, viremia, um, they might even have det- undetectable levels of viremia, which is why we're not detecting it on nasopharyngeal swab or oropharyngeal swab, or that it or that it may require perfect technique, right? Because the test itself is not easy to administer. Um, whether that means that patients don't generate humoral immunity to the virus, um, and which is why their, their serologies remain negative. I think there probably are um, some patients who fall into that category. But I think there's no question that there is some association between, between the virus and, and the skin findings and the uh, ultra um, uh, structural, the ultrastructural microscopy photos are, are probably our best uh, evidence to show a direct relationship um, by seeing the uh, viral particles in vascular endothelium. So I think that that is such important work. You know, although there, as you know, yeah, ultra uh, electron microscopy is not easy to do. So I think there were only a handful of cases that, in which that's been documented, but so important um, to help us really uh, begin to um, really identify 
um, uh, you know, the relation, the true relationship between um, this virus and the skin manifestations. And then finally, I think that there's a probably a, a number, and I think we've all, um, you know, we do some random testing of people um, for various settings for various reasons. Um, and uh, and have discovered asymptomatic carriers, so or asymptomatic shedders. So, for example, we have a number of patients. That we uh, Esther brought up the example of Mohs surgery. We we test all of our patients for um, uh, nasopharyngeal swab for SARS-CoV-2 before the day before they come to their Mohs appointment, um, because if if they need to take the mask off in order to have their surgeries done, and we've actually captured a number of patients who are ace, completely asymptomatic but are are positive by piece by pharyngeal swab, and I think that speaks to the fact that there are a number of asymptomatic people, and whether those people have skin findings, you know, they might feel so well they may not even think to report it. So I think there's probably a lot of reporting bias testing bias or bias of testing because people didn't have access to testing and, uh, and a real um, challenge in terms of determining the prevalence as well as the true associations between all of the skin symptoms that we're seeing and, and this virus. There are two recent papers I just wanted to briefly share with you. Um, one was this concept of patients with asymptomatic or mild COVID-19 um, actually having a robust T-cell immunity rather than perhaps they're not actually mounting an antibody-type yeah. response at all. So I thought that's in cell. I thought that was a very interesting paper. And the other one that I thought was very interesting and relevant um, is... Um, for patients with mild COVID-19, the idea that their antibodies, if they do have them, decay very rapidly. And so I think both of these highlight points that Kanata were making was making about timing. And also, as you were saying, maybe with these asymptomatic individuals, you know, maybe we're never going to, some of them may not test PCR positive, or some of them may not ever test antibody positive. Um, so I think those are just some, some really interesting developments that I wanted to share. Yeah, absolutely. And and to build on that, I think, well, there are some very important questions about whether serologic positivity confers any um, immunity uh, to the virus. And if so, what does that mean? Um, if we have a person who tests positive for serology, does that mean they will have durable immunity over time? So I think, I think um, there are some big, big questions that need to be answered. Well, we'll move on to our next theme then. Thank you very much for a very, very um, thorough and uh, interesting exploration of this topic. I think I think we're going to find out a hell of a lot more in the next you know, 12 months or so. So the next theme we have is really on immunosuppression and um, in this current pandemic. So we all have patients on biologics with psoriasis, heavily immunosuppressed patients, all kinds of autoimmune skin diseases. And um, there was a recent paper published in the Australasian Journal of Dermatology, which is a consensus on the use of biologic and immunomodulatory treatment in the time of COVID. I would like to ask um, uh, Kanade and Esther what your opinion is on how patients on immunosuppressive drugs and biologics should be managed during this, this era. Maybe you can kick us off, Kanade. Yeah, it's such an important question. And I think uh, we, I will I'll just start by saying I think more data is needed. Um, there have been a number of uh, efforts towards this end. The first effort has been um, the gathering of many uh, experts to develop consensus statements. 
um, largely that are, are mostly disease-based, um, but some are, are, you know, from the American Academy of Dermatology, which I'll let Esther talk about since she was involved in that work, um, the National Psoriasis Foundation, um, and, and, um, and making some general recommendations about, um, you know, if you have a patient who is not on immunosuppression, is now the time to start them on immunosuppression? And, um, and if so, which one is the best? You know, for me, I think um, I think the jury is still out in terms of the evidence needed to this towards, you know, to really answer this question. And one of the things I'm very struck by that might take time to gather is really comparing um, our patient population, uh, meaning patients who are immunosuppressed for dermatologic reasons versus those who are immunosuppressed for other reasons, for example, for uh, an organ transplant recipient or a stem cell transplant recipient or a patient with rheumatologic disease not affecting the skin, um, and whether uh, that that risk of, of either developing COVID um, or dying of COVID is different from that of the general population. I think we really need to parse out the data in context of the general population, and I think that data is not going to be available until we see very large database studies, for example, an insurance database um, study or, or medication claim study um, that's going to really look at that question and, and hopefully we'll have the granularity to really identify um, the true risks for our patients. Um, because as you know, for example, a patient who is immunosuppressed for skin disease even has different risks of developing opportunistic infection than those who have rheumatoid arthritis and are on exactly the same medications, right? Because the underlying immunology is just different. Um, one of the things I was struck by early in the pandemic is it seemed like every disease organization created a registry of their own patients in isolation, which I think is certainly an important aim to capture what is happening with that patient population, but again, lacks the context um, of comparing that to general risk. And I think one thing that uh, has really driven that point home was just published this week, um, a series of patient, uh, a series of papers um, published in the JAMA network about um, patients uh, with dexamethasone um, that was given to them as part of protocols for sort of sepsis protocols or sort of you know, critically ill um, management uh, patients um, in ARDS actually did better um, in terms of, of survival. Um, and I think that's important data to suggest that, that uh, there may be a role for broad corticosteroid use in COVID, the question is when? So if you're already on it, does that give you increased risk of even contracting the virus itself? Um, or is it enough to just be on it and will that help you throughout your course of, of uh, disease infection? We don't know the answer to that. So it certainly is not um, necessarily translatable into our, our uh, very large patient population with dermatologic disease who are on uh, systemic corticosteroids um, and it was specifically dexamethasone. So I think there is um, some important information there. We can certainly hypothesize based on the mechanism of action um, however, you know, I think ultimately we're going to need some rigorous science, um, hopefully, ideally to prospectively study this, um, but at some point it may, it may initially come out through uh, retrospective analysis of, of large databases to provide that context of the relative risk um, for our patients. Thank you. Esther? Yeah, I agree. It's, a, it's a, certainly a challenging area. And I think Patty's um, point about multiple different disease-specific registries is something we, we've been kind of dealing with in our fields. Uh, so one thing we actually did was to start a collaboration between all of the different registries 
Um, so for example, um, PSO Protect um, is the psoriasis registry for COVID-19. Uh, Secure AD is the atopic dermatitis registry for COVID-19. So one thing we did is we actually um, established a collaboration across eight registries um, pretty much right at the very beginning. Um, and we've actually gone ahead and shared our data. I work actively currently, I'm currently working with two other registries um, in collaborations um, with the idea of being of trying not to silo this work because I think that's what's so hard is that if you have like, you know, one registry who has some patients on biologics and another registry that has another group, but you really want to understand about the medications, not just the diseases, I think it is really important. So we are at least collaborating. We've done a couple of things, um, like an example in our registry, if you click off that your patient has pre-existing psoriasis, you actually get a little bubble that says, you know, did you want to also this enter this in the psoriasis registry? And even if you don't, you can still, we'll still collaborate with them. And you can actually, if you enter a case in the psoriasis registry, you can let us know if not if that case has also been entered in our registry, because you also don't want to double count cases, which is one thing that we were very worried about. Um, so now we're all talking to each other, which I think is important. Um, but I agree with Kanade that the registry data is probably not the best way to answer this. I think we can kind of take like little bites at the apple, but I, I love your idea about these larger, you know, drug databases, I think are probably going to give us more powerful information. I did want to just share with you, I'll share my screen again. This is, I think my last little share screen, um, just some of the guidelines um, around immunosuppressives, just to kind of give you a sense of what's out there. Um, so... Okay, so I think one thing is, so I'm the chair of clinical guidelines for the American Academy of Dermatology. So on a normal day, um, I oversee our the American Academy of Dermatology guidelines on things like um, psoriasis, melanoma, uh, actinic keratosis. Um, right now we're doing atopic dermatitis. That's like my normal job. Well, it's not really my normal job. It's one of my extra normal jobs <laughs> uh, that I do on the side. And um, I was in that role when COVID-19 hit. And so very quickly, we found ourselves in a place where we were needing to create guidance for the United States in an area where there was no evidence. Um, so I did author this piece pretty early on in the epidemic. You can see it was published April 9th. So that was pretty early for us um, about how do we create guidelines when there is no evidence. So it's one thing if you have an evidence-based process, and it's quite another when there is no evidence to filter into the evidence-based process. And I think it's really important for people to recognize, as Kanade mentioned, that these are many of these are consensus statements, which is totally different than an evidence-based guideline. This is really like expert opinion because we don't truly have the data we would need to do a proper assessment. So I think it's just important for people to understand the quality of what these are. These are not really true guidelines. Um, I did want to bring up some of the preliminary data from some of the registries. This is a, a registry that um, was actually very helpful to us, the Global Rheumatology Alliance. Um, they launched about a week or 10 days before us and very kindly shared a lot of their kind of pitfalls in their process. Um, they've done a nice job looking um, at um, biologics. Interestingly here, they found that anti-TNFs had a decreased odd of hospitalization in patients with rheumatic disease. But it's interesting, right? If you look at their glucocorticoid data, which is like opposite of what Kanade was just telling us. So I think there's still so much that's, you know, unclear because we've heard a lot more data coming out in favor recently of steroids, right? So it's a question of what do we mean by that? 
I think just to share the American Academy of Dermatology guidance, which we wrote, um, and there's more details on the American Academy of Dermatology COVID-19 resource page. Our real emphasis when we built this um, was, this was really at when we were at our peak, um, was to try to keep patients unnecessarily out of the emergency rooms and overburdening the health system. Um, and to think about the fact that you have to balance the risk of immunosuppression with the fact that if you take someone off, they're going to flare. Um, so we felt very strongly that people should not just come off their immunosuppressive therapy and it should be a real discussion one-on-one -on -one based on the risk profiles of that patient. And so there's more details on the American Academy of Dermatology website. I thought I would also highlight um, some more other guide guidance. So this comes from the National Psoriasis Foundation. Um, this is a nice one. If you go on their website, there's actually 20, it's much more detailed than we have from the American Academy of Dermatology. They have 22 different key recommendations. Um, and it does uh, follow a similar reasoning, which is that patients who are not infected with COVID should continue their biologic or oral therapies for psoriasis in most cases. And then it talks about the concept of shared decision-making. Um, and then they go into a lot more detail. Right. Thank you. So look, I, I completely agree that the data is still scant, but I think overall um, it is less worrying than when initially COVID hit, because when it first hit, everyone thought, oh my God, if you're immunosuppressed, you're going to die. That that certainly isn't the case. And, and the current evidence is you know, kind of keeping in that. I too have patients who are, you know, doing very well, but, and I did have one patient with severe eczema who decided that he wanted to stop his immunosuppression. And lo and behold, he was hospitalized twice in, in the span of four weeks because he just got severe infective flares. So that's pretty counterintuitive. Um, um, if it's okay if I just um, interject, I, I think another important point is that we are in such an unusual time in, in world history where we actually have the capacity to shelter in place. And, and that is, is quite unusual. So I think there is actually an exposure bias happening. Um, I think if you are an immunosuppressed patient, you are much more likely, at least in the, in the States, you're going to utilize all of the, the, the um, gifts of technology that you can have your groceries delivered, your medications delivered. You can pretty much have anything under the sun you need. Um, uh, if you need a cookie, you can have it delivered uh, to your home. Um, and so um, that, that provides an incredible protection for these patients. So what, what I, I think we still, um, what still remains to be seen is what will happen when we try to reenter these patients back into society, uh, a normal society when, um, you know, with or without masks, um, back into the workplace, back onto public transportation, back into the clinics. I think these are questions that are still remaining. I think we're still in a shelter, um, a sheltered shelter. And I think that that is an important um, caveat to some of the data that we're seeing. Yeah. Thank you, Kanade. Okay, so look, thank you. We, we're going to go and, you know, do the last section, which is really on, on challenges. Um, both of you are um, teachers of dermatology, and teaching is one of the things that we do on the bedside. In Australia, for a while, it basically just ground to a halt um, because we just couldn't go into a room and see patients together. Um, so virtual teaching became, really took off. Um, so, um, Esther and Kanade, can you tell tell us what was it like for you to be to be teachers you know, during this period? Are you still teaching? How are you teaching? Well, we've had to be incredibly uh, flexible and creative. Um, 
And also really acknowledging the stress on our learners. Our, our learners weren't redeployed um, as in uh, Esther's case, but um, I think uh, our trainees, our medical students were equally terrified to come to work as they were dissatisfied with their education. And I think that was a very difficult tension to manage uh, as a medical educator. Um, you know, it also, also taught us some of the real joys of what you can accomplish on Zoom, as we're seeing happening here, and um, and using technology to creatively um, teach. So, for example, um, you can actually do a lot of observation of residents on Zoom, because if you're all on a Zoom video visit with a patient, um, you can actually observe your resident counseling and speaking to the patient. And so you can actually provide very rich feedback. Usually I'm not in the room as they're carrying all of this out. And I think these are important um, opportunities that we can uh, you know, work with our learners. And <clears throat> we've had a lot of fun uh, gamification of, of teaching, um, but um, over, over Zoom and other platforms, I think one of the most difficult things has been the, the mandates for social distancing in our clinic. We just have not been able to reintroduce all of our learners back into the clinic. And when I say all of our learners, uh, that of course includes our dermatology resident physicians, our registrars, our medical students, but also all the primary care trainees, um, even um, even uh, you know other specialists who come in to work with us. It's because usually it's a more the merrier um, uh, approach. And now we've had to be very careful limiting our numbers and that this has mandated a lot of very complex scheduling um, to uh, orchestrate so that we can really maximize the number of, of learners within the limits of social distancing. And so that, that has been um, a really challenging um, thing. And also there is a, an entire class of medical students and residents who really lost about three months of their education um, and are, we're now playing catch up for them. And that's been a source of anxiety um, for, for students and administrators or administrators alike. So it's, it's challenging. And, and, and I always ask myself, you know, one of the things I always uh, really cherish as an educator is saying, if you, you know you can really show something, so you see it with your own two eyes, you'll never forget it. And so my normal inclination is, oh my gosh, the the, the Kate, you know, the, the individual in room um, three, like everyone needs to go in there in that room and see that patient and burn that you know clinical exam into your mind and just remember that that is disease X. You know, it's just a real joy of teaching. And now we have to sort of think twice, like how many people do you want to potentially expose? Um, the patient to and also expose our learners to um, by having these contact points in the clinic space. So these are all things that we're, we're grappling with. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the added stress of having to do recruitment of new residents um, it completely virtually, um, which is how it's going to happen in the upcoming months. In particular, I mentor, um, I usually mentor several medical students one-on-one -on -one for a research year. And I was very lucky to have a, a truly incredible uh, research uh, fellow who's a Harvard medical student this year working with me who ended up doing all of our COVID research with me. Um, so that was really incredible um, because it was just an incredible training opportunity for her and for me uh, to have a buddy that was working on this at all times of night and day. Um, during the peak. I think, um, however, a lot of my trainees are applying to dermatology residency this year. And a lot of what Kanade was talking about, um, the trainees that I mentor are very lucky. They were taking a year off already. They had already done their dermatology uh, rotation. So they'd already, you know, met people, had the experience. But a lot of our uh, 
folks, our medical students who are interested in applying in dermatology might not have a home dermatology program. And so they were really relying on the idea that they were going to have an away rotation um, at a place with a dermatology program and all of those got canceled. So it's very possible that you could be a medical student who wanted to go into dermatology and you don't even have any dermatologist who's able to write you a letter of recommendation. That's a really tough situation to be in. So um, I think it's going to be a really hard year for a lot of our trainees. I think um, we've, uh, we're going to have to wind this up soon. So perhaps I, I can just let you talk, tell us, um, Esther and Kanade, you know, what, what, are, what are the real, you know, kind of take-home messages from your experience working in the pandemic and, you know, things that you think we can learn from? <laughs> An incredible opportunity for dermatologists to really lead this work. I mean, I think... I remember reading um, a, a case series out of Wuhan, China, that looked at you know a couple hundred patients uh, of, of patients infected with SARS-CoV-2, and they had reported a, a you know a rash incidence, a prevalence of less than a percent. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that if you don't get dermatology experts looking at these patients and systematically examining them, we're going to not understand the true prevalence and, um, and perhaps prognostic value of, of rashes in this patient population. So I think it's a real opportunity. I have sort of two other thoughts. Um, one is putting my, ed- my um, editor hat on is that, um, you know, we had a tremendous influx of, um, of uh, submissions during um, the kind of peak of COVID. So sort of April, May, June, um, we were uh, getting about 200% submissions. Um, and if you look at the published reports in the dermatology literature, um, I, I wrote out, there's about 100, if you type in COVID and rash into PubMed, you get 141 uh, hits. If you type COVID in skin, you get 571 hits. And if you type in COVID toes, you get 25 uh, hits. And that's in contrast to if you type COVID toe into Google, you will see 2 trillion hits. Um, so there's really, I think, an opportunity um, to think about how we can rigorously study um, this entity. And I think, though I don't hope there will be additional waves, I can only guess that there might be. Um, and I think that might be a time for prospective study and also poising ourselves, as Esther has done, to bring together groups of researchers um, to really crowdsource, I love that word, um, to crowdsource our, our um our talent and um, our, our what we're seeing um, to really maximize um, that effort. Um, one thing I just wanted to sort of throw into the ring of discussion is something we haven't really touched on very much is about telemedicine. Um, I, I don't know what the situation was uh, there in Australia, but in the U.S. Um, we had changes to um, our essentially uh, the way uh, our governing body uh, allows um, telemedicine and there was rapid opening of telemedicine. in in mid-March, of which many academic centers implemented within weeks. And um, the question I have about that is whether, um, you know, so we had very robust uh, telemedicine clinics. You could basically do an entire clinic uh, on telemedicine, although for me, it always took a little bit longer than seeing the patients in person. I'm not really certain why that is. Um, But the question I always ask myself is, why are these the patients we really need to be seeing? Um, And and have we actually, by increasing this arm of access um, to patients, uh, have we actually truly expanded our access to dermatologic care? And I'm not convinced, um, and I would like someone to study 
this question because I'm actually worried that telehealth may actually um, uh, exacerbate current disparities in access to health, uh, to, to dermatologic expert care. And um, I think that's a very critical self-reflection for our specialty. So even though it provided access, it allowed us to continue to do our work. Um, I am still uncertain whether those are the patients who needed us most. And I think that is a, a very important question about our resources. Um, as I have a, I have a feeling telemedicine will be here to stay. Um, I would like to see this question um, answered uh, to make sure that we're thoughtfully um, uh, implementing um, telemedicine to the patients who need it the most. Um, is there any kind of take-home messages? What Kanade was saying about health disparities, I think we see this in the data, and it's it's still very distressing to me. And something we've been working on very actively from the beginning is, you know, knowing that um, in the U.S. and worldwide that COVID nineteen is really hitting uh, places that are at a disadvantage socioeconomically, and that. These, if you look at our skin data, it's not necessarily coming from these communities that are actually hardest hit by COVID-19. Um, and I think that shows us a lot about disparities in access to medical care and disparities in access to dermatologic care. Um, and so I think that's a, a really important point. Um, and I certainly echo what Kanade was saying there. I think we're seeing that in dermatologic data as well, is that we should be seeing more and I think it's a symbol of the fact that we're not reaching those patients successfully. Um, so I think that's one point. I wanted to just end on a high note and just say, for me, one of my COVID silver linings um, has actually been the amount of international collaboration and the fact that it's relatively easy for me to come, you know, here I am on a Friday night on a vacation weekend here, and I'm able to come and just pop in and, and talk to all of you. So um, that's been really nice to be able to build those international bridges. Um, and to be able to collaborate with a lot of people that um, I didn't know before uh, that are running these different registries around the world. And so it's been a real pleasure for me to get to know uh, a truly you know, global group of dermatologists and really to be inspired by so many of our wonderful colleagues doing such strong work um, around the globe. So that's been a small COVID silver lining. Thank you. I've never heard the term COVID silver lining before, but now I have. So I think that's um, what we have time for. Um, Firstly, I want to thank uh, Esther and Kanade on behalf of the Australasian College of Dermatologists and the Skin Health Institute Melbourne. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience with us and being so generous and open with it. Can I please ask the remaining audience members, all 85 of you, to unmute yourselves and just give a round of applause to our guests in the usual manner, like clapping. Okay, now um, I also want to thank the team at the Australasian College of Dermatologists, particularly um, Ms. Sarah Stedman and Kevin Turner. Thank you for setting this up and for um, publicizing it. My team at the Skin Health Institute, in particular, Aaron Robinson for being co-host, Peter Monaghan, Joe Coughlin in the education team. And one final thank to Dr. Sarah Aaron from, from California for introducing me to Canade. So thank you. Um, I'll, I'll leave on, on a note, note of hope, um, and it's unusually a scene from one of my favorite movies, which is The Two Towers from Lord of the Rings. So as you know, um, Frodo is the ring bearer, and this is the, the second um, book, and he has been through hell, and he's despairing. So he says to his good friend, Sam Gamgee, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam replies, 
how could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it is only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. So thank you for your attention, ladies and gentlemen. Stay safe, and I look forward to seeing you all face-to-face when the darkness has passed. Thank you. And with that extraordinary episode, the first season of Spot Diagnosis comes to a close. Thank you all for listening. It is hard to imagine that the Spot Diagnosis podcast series was only released in early March 2020, perfectly timed as the coronavirus pandemic hit. However, we were able to find a global audience in 37 countries. Spot Diagnosis has been downloaded 3,000 times and has made it onto the resource list of several medical schools. We've also had fantastic feedback from so many of you, so thank you. This podcast has been a labor of love, and I would like to thank a few people today. Dr. Tom Covey, the co-host of Spot Diagnosis, was my research and education fellow, and we started this journey together. Tom has now taken on a position as dermatology registrar and will not be able to keep working on spot diagnosis after the season. I would like to thank him for his hard work and enthusiasm, and I wish him well in the future. I'm also very fortunate to work with Ms. Joe Coglin, Education Officer at the Skin Health Institute. Joe is our editor, producer, coordinator, and is the reason why we can continue to do what we do. You're amazing, Joe. Thank you. I want to thank Peter Monaghan, Director of Education at Skin Health Institute. Peter has had to quickly learn about podcast production, publication, metrics, and has supported spot diagnosis most wholeheartedly. Thank you, Peter. This wouldn't have been possible without you too. To the team at Skin Health Institute, thank you all for your faith in us. I now want to thank our guests, Drs. Peter Foley, Tori Ma, John Sue, Belinda Welsh, Catherine Armour, Kanada Shinkai, and Esther Freeman. Thank you all for your generosity and openness and for giving up your time and expertise. I would like to thank Maddie Shawasta, Riordan Davis, the team at Balloon Tree Productions for their help in producing Spot Diagnosis. Special thanks to Dr. Karen Freelich, the podcast pioneer behind Humorous Hacks, for inspiring me to consider doing a dermatology podcast. Dr. Sunny Singh, my good friend, for being a great sounding board for ideas. And finally, a big thank you to all of you, the listeners. Thank you for your attention. If you like what you hear, please rate us and recommend us to your friends and colleagues. We welcome any feedback. And if you have ideas for podcasts that you would like to hear, please let us know on spotdiagnosis.org.au. We would love to hear from you. Please stay tuned for season two, where we at Spot Diagnosis will continue to explore the world of dermatology. Thank you and stay safe. Stay safe.